Well, good morning to everybody. It is great to see all of you here today. And to those of you who are joining us online, welcome to you as well. We're very thankful that you can take part of our worship to our Lord together with us here. Uh, if you would be so kind, uh, take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Philippians, chapter 2. I would ask if you are able to please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Philippians, chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11 of what I hope is a very familiar passage to everyone, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God adds his blessing to the reading of his word. Please do be seated. So for the last couple of weeks, we have been taking a look at the statement of, of the, uh, uh, the uh, angel in Matthew chapter 1, um, which is quoting the book of Isaiah. Um, Matthew chapter 1, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. I should say that that was cited as a, to note the fulfillment of what the angel was telling them. Uh, and the, his name Emmanuel, which tra is translated God with us. So we've been looking at Emmanuel, God with us, and breaking it down very finely, uh, and noting, first of all, the last couple of words in that phrase of God with us, Focusing on the with us portion and noting that Jesus Christ was fully man. Man in every respect. Man physically, man emotionally, man intellectually. Um, in, every, in every part of his life, he was fully man. And noted the necessity of that being the case because he had to uh, be able to represent us as our second Adam. If he was not fully man... He could not represent man when he went to the cross. But the other part of that is that he is God with us. And so last week we spent some time looking at the fact that the Lord Jesus is fully God as well. And why is that so important? 
If He's a lesser God, if He is a created being, if He is just uh, another man who somehow uh, worked His way up eventually to, to a status of Godhood, rather, uh, or of, and I don't mean equal with the Father, we read in Philippians chapter 2, equality with God is His former state before He took on man. Equal with the Father. That's so important because only God can fulfill God's plan. Only God can fulfill His redemptive work. If Jesus was just a man or a lesser being, some sort of lesser deity, um, in fact, uh, we know that He was made a little lower than the angels. Angels don't save anybody. No, He had to be fully God as well and remain fully God in union with uh, His full human nature as well. And we developed that from the Scriptures last time also, noting that the Scriptures very clearly teach that He is fully God in power. He is the one who is declared to be the Creator of the world, at, even as the Father is, is declared that also. So, um, He is fully God as the Creator. He performed miracles as God. He conquered death as God. We noted that. And the Scriptures reveal throughout that Jesus Christ was fully God in every attribute that He had. Though there were, there were aspects of God's glory, there were aspects of knowledge that He voluntarily laid aside for the time while He was here on earth. Nonetheless, He is the one who is cited as true and holy, absolutely authoritative in all things, eternal, clearly omniscient in, in, uh, in how He knew the hearts of men. Merciful as only God can be merciful. Remember the Pharisees even recognized that when they say, how can you forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And you can almost hear the, well, duh, come out. Yeah, the reason He can forgive sins is because He's, he's God and He can show that mercy even as He also stands as the one who is just, the one who is the one who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and at His kingdom. And then we spent some time looking at that title, the Son of God, and what that means. And noting that He's, it's not just that He's got some characteristics that He shares with God. I mean, we do that as well. Communicable attributes. And even in the power aspect, but that He's truly God in unity with the Father, where Jesus declared in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. And we looked at that title, Son of God, uh, which declares that He is the one who is eternally, uh, uniquely related to or begotten of God. Uh, it's not about... Uh, him having a point of beginning as a, as a, uh, we think of the term begotten in human terms, uh, but it is speaking of that ongoing relationship with, and, uh, with the Father. Um, he's not a subservient. He's not a lesser, lesser being. He is one with God. I mean, even God the Father, as we read in Hebrews chapter 1, quoting Psalm 45, even the Father calls the Son God. So we looked at that aspect of being fully God last week. Now we're going to wrap all this up. 
Now, I mean, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on this, but we're going to just look at that term, Emmanuel, and finish up our phrase, Emmanuel, God with us. So we've gone actually from the back of the phrase and moved towards the front of it. But uh, this uh, term, Emmanuel, captures kind of the, the, the practical outworking, the, you know, what this really means. We've, we've talked a lot about theology proper uh, regarding Christ um, in, in his nature, and in a sense it's been a little more in the, we've been trying to dig into the mystery of this, of this union between God and man without confusion, without conversion, without uh, any, any problems of, of one, one part of his nature robbing from the other, but no fully God and fully man. And that's kind of heady. It's kind of theoretical. Uh, in the, you understand, I'm not saying that it's, there's any doubt about it, but it's just in our, our way of thinking, we're trying to grasp the concepts and maybe struggling to do that. And that's okay because it is a mystery and it's beyond us. And it's a good thing for us to do to humble ourselves before God that we cannot fully, fully understand and therefore control. But Emmanuel is where the rubber hits the road. We're going to talk about what that means for all of these things, for his own nature and then his effect, the effect of this reality upon us. His people. So last time I quoted from uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, uh, and paragraph 2. And I want to cite that again because uh, it spoke to the aspect of Christ's uh, uh, humanity and his deity, but it also speaks to putting it all together. So let's uh, follow along as I read here. I don't know if I printed it in the notes or not, but uh, the Son of God, the, that uh, statement says, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time was come take upon himself God's nature, or man's nature, sorry, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion. Remember we talked about these terms. Uh, the, the, the deity didn't change and the manhood didn't change. Composition, they didn't borrow from each other. Or confusion, they remained distinct natures in one person which person is very god it goes on and very man yet one christ the only mediator between god and man pretty great statement but again what what is this what is it, how does this work out what does this mean i want to think first of all about the effect of this this what's called the hypostatic union of of the deity and humanity of Christ. What is the effect upon his divine nature? This sort of speaks to the, the composition and confusion 
statements that were there, as I guess conversion as well. Here, you ready? Here it is. It's unchanged. Divine nature is not he's, Jesus, and this was a this was one of the things that early heresies really struggled with, is that somehow they felt like deity would be corrupted by being united with with by, with humanity, so that therefore they struggled with giving Jesus full divine status because uh, that that couldn't work, or struggle with saying that he could be human at all. And we talked about some of those heresies uh, in the last couple of weeks. As A.A. Uh, a. Hodge uh, says, a great Princeton theologian, uh, noted, divinity continues to exist as the eternal personal word embracing a perfect human nature so that it becomes a part of him and an organ of his will. Deity's unchanged. He's not, though he laid aside some of the outer aspects of the glory that are, were rightly due to him. I mean, even the Jews, uh, the, the Jews struggled, right? And we talked about this because Jesus Christ, the one that they saw ministering among them, did not rise to the image that they had in their mind of what the divine Messiah would be. They were looking for glory and bells and whistles and all this other kind of stuff. And here Jesus comes and all they can see is that he's a carpenter's son dressed in dusty clothes. And there's, as prophet Isaiah says, there's nothing about, uh, contrary to all of the, the uh, pictures and statues and all those other things that people like to put around of the Lord Jesus of being this... Um, um, you know, handsome, tall, uh, white guy with long hair. Uh, no. There was nothing about him, Isaiah says, that we would want to pursue him. And so for the Jews, they were like, well, that, that, they couldn't conceive uh, that God... The God who created all things, the God who parted the Red Sea, the God who sustained Israel through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and took them across the River Jordan and conquered the land and made all these promises through Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. How could he be this guy? And yet their confusion still reigns today in the hearts of men and women. Because we want a Jesus that we can understand, that we can put in our box, that fits our preferences, that fits our perception of what God should be and do. And usually what that entails is a God who will get us where we want to go according to our terms. And the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't do that. So we go making, him, making up another version of him, borrowing a few verses from the Bible where it's convenient, and then the rest filling in the details from our own imagination. But divinity was unchanged. 
I love what Emmanuel means. Okay, don't normally do this. I want everybody to say Emmanuel. Emmanuel. You all just spoke Hebrew. You're all, you can all, you know, check that box. Yes, I've spoken Hebrew now. In case you've been wanting to do that. Because Emmanuel is a transliteration of two Hebrew words. Uh, M, or three. M, Nu, and El. Though M, Nu is uh, the first part. Or, and when you put the vowel in, it's Emanu. M part, that's with. Nu is us. El is the shortened version of. Elohim. Emmanuel means God with us, God, or God with us. And I love the fact, and I love, as you know, I love God's covenant name, Yahweh. But it's interesting that in this title that's given to the Lord Jesus here, uh, the covenant name, though he will claim the covenant name when he declares, I that he is the I am. Here, it's Elohim, the Almighty One, is with us. Why is that so important? What's the emphasis there? In this, the emphasis is not upon God's covenant faithfulness, and of course that's established over and over and over many other places. But here there's an emphasis that, uh, you know, we sing about the needy world, rejoices um, in a carol or two that we sing often this time of year. Why does the needy world rejoice when Jesus Christ is revealed? It's because he is the one who is able to carry out God's plan. So the emphasis upon God's might and ability in this title that belongs to Jesus, one of many that belong to him, is a powerful one. Uh, the great uh, Greek scholar A.T. Robertson uh, translated it kind of more of a more of a in, uh, an interpretive type of translation uh, when he talked about God's help, Jesus Christ. He is he is the help of God is thus seen, he says. One day Jesus will say to Philip, he that has seen me has seen the Father, in John 14, 9. He is the one who is able to carry out all the will of the Godhead. And indeed, as Paul would say in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So his divine nature is unchanged. But what about the effect upon his human nature? Here, there is a change from the rest of us. In Philippians chapter 2, we read of this just a little bit earlier, verses 5 through 11. And talking about the mind of Christ, who was willing to lay aside some of the glories that were rightly his, and made himself, just emptied himself. That's what it is, what is literally there. He emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And it doesn't mean he's, uh, again, some cults have said, well, see, it says likeness, so that means he's not really man. Uh, no, it, it means that he's completely man, just as everybody else is. 
uh, with the distinction, of course, that he's still fully God and without sin. But he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. When we think about Christ's human nature, though he is sub he was subject to weariness, he was subject to sorrow, he was subject to pain, he was subject to um, even uh, dread. Jesus Christ's human nature demonstrates within himself an exaltation of all human excellence beyond all human standards. People noticed that there was something different about him. We are told that he is the firstborn and, and by that means that he is preeminent using the the cultural terms of the day, a firstborn, the firstborn son was preeminent as the heir. And those terms are being used to help us gain some comprehension of the relationship between Christ and the Father and Christ and us. But in all things, he was preeminent. And as a supreme man, he becomes worthy of dignity and glory. Even in his dusty carpenter appearance. He was worthy of all dignity and glory above all others. And even in his human nature, which remains, by the way, he is able to be present with every believer simultaneously. Through the ministry of the Spirit, he dwells with us. As the soul is present with the body, it's incapable of extension in and of itself. Or, uh, contrary to um, you know, Dickens' uh, The Christmas Carol, uh, where, uh, where uh, Marley says you know, that the soul of man, if it does not walk abroad while he's living, it's condemned to walk abroad after death, which is a bunch of hooey. The soul uh, is is intimately connected with the with our bodies and uh, we don't send it out abroad of course i'm not sure dickens actually believed that literally i think he was being figurative but sometimes we have this idea that our souls can do amazing things uh, apart from the body but no, it's it's part of who we are the separation comes at when our bodies die but then our souls are absent with the body present with the lord and they will be reunited at the day of resurrection Again, Emmanuel means God with us, united to us, manifested in the flesh with us. An outgrowth of that is seen in passages like Matthew 18, where in verse 20 it says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Because he is... He is uh, in. He cannot be separated. His soul cannot be separated from his uh, humanity, and he ministers to us uh, as one with us. Did he pray for that? So that leads me to then say to ask the question: What is the effect then upon us, upon his church? 
Well, there's some interesting uh, things to consider here. Turn over, if you will, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. And here's really where we get to the practical ramifications of what Emmanuel means. And I trust that as you uh, listen to, to this, as we go through these passages and these points, that with me you will be encouraged, that you will be humbled, and that you will be thrilled to the very core of your being with a God who is not content to be a God who holds his creatures at arm's length, but draws them to himself, to himself, and adopts them and makes them his own and comes and dwells with us so that we can be one just as he and the Father are one. And so in Hebrews 9, beginning at verse, or 2, sorry, uh, I'm going to look at Hebrews 9 in a minute. Hebrews 2, verse 9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So what's the first effect we want to look at here? The fact that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, fully God and fully man, makes it possible and secures for us a relationship that is described as being brothers with him. Being brethren. Meaning there's, in Christ, there's no shame, as we read here. Have you ever done anything that you're ashamed of? You ever been ashamed for someone else when they've done something that uh, violates a relationship you may have with them? And yet the God of heaven, because of Jesus Christ being with us, says, I'm not ashamed to call you brothers. Let that sink in for a minute. If you're in Christ, the eternal God, creator of all things, is not ashamed of you. When he has every right to be so. That is the fullness of God at work to give us a salvation that brings us to that place. And it's astounding. And the emphasis upon sanctification. The Father set apart Christ 
to accomplish the eternal plan from before the foundations of the earth. And He set His children apart to receive the benefits of that sacrifice of the one Jesus Christ who was set apart. And in that being set apart, we are one with Him as His brethren. Content in our mutual relationship with God. What an incredible thing to be a brother, a sister of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage then goes on, verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, okay, we share flesh and blood with our Savior. He himself likewise partook of the same things all that, are, that are related to flesh and blood and what it means to be flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or the basis of forgiveness for the sins of the people. And because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Not only are we positionally have the name tag brother with Christ, We are freed in him from bondage, the bondage of sin and death. As the perfect mediator, we read here, Christ destroyed the bondage of the hearts of his elect to the devil, to sin, and to temptation forever. Athanasius, who uh, was particularly noted, I mentioned him last week, particularly noted for his opposition to the heretic Arius, who uh, said that Christ was a created being. Um, not fully God, and without a real divine aspect uh, or, or influence upon his humanity. Athanasius made this statement, what Jesus did not assume he could not save. He had to become one of us, but in remaining, but still remaining God. Otherwise, he could not free us. Only God could free us from sin. And we have that freedom, that freedom from bondage. That we no longer have to be subject to temptations. That we no longer have to be subject to the, the will of our flesh, the longings that would, would be contrary to God's word and purpose and harmful to others. In Christ we have true freedom. Because as the God-man, he alone could destroy the power of sin and death, and he did so. I've uh, quoted for you there, um, let's see, I have this extraneous G in my little abbreviation there, Anyway, Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, uh, chapter 8 and paragraph 5. 
puts it this way. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father, and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given unto him. Jesus Christ fully obeyed in every respect his Father, and in so doing, secured our redemption in every aspect, not just for now, but for eternity granting us an inheritance with the Son, the preeminent one. And we are joint heirs with him, as the scriptures tell us elsewhere. So we're brothers with him. We're free from the bondage of sin and death. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 9, and verses 13 and 14. What is all that... What does all that mean? What does that lead to? Verse uh, 13 again of chapter 9. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. It's referring to the Mosaic Code and the sacrificial system of burnt offerings and sin offerings. And the Lord accepted those things as a... a token of his atonement, a covering for sin. But those things were looking forward to the reality of what Jesus Christ would do once and for all. So if the Lord was willing to accept those things by his own appointment, by his own ordination, for the forgiveness of sins, how much more, the writer of Hebrews asks, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. How much more will his blood purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Christ did not simply save us, again, to just put us in the position to check the box, yep, that person's saved. Good. But it is saved unto good works. It's a setting apart, a sanctifying, a purifying to personal service to the true and living God. If Jesus Christ was not the God-man, if he was just one or the other, we might live in terror of him if he was just simply only deity, or as many do, live in contempt of him if he's only a man. But as the perfect God-man, he's worth serving. He is worthy of all glory and honor and of putting aside of ourselves to serve him, to glorify him, to worship him, to minister in his name to others and be a blessing to others. We are set apart by his redemption to serve the eternal living God. And to be able to do so from the one who is, as we read, um, able to hold us, to keep us, to sustain us, 
to equip us so that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And this redemption that uh, we've spoken of here is permanent, perfect, and final. We read in Hebrews 9, again, verse 22, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. If Jesus, the, the man, is one of the uh, heres early heresies uh, uh, suggested that he was just some sort of a hologram, just some sort of vision with no real humanity, well, if there's no real humanity, there's no blood. And if there's no blood, there's no sacrifice. And if there's no bloody sacrifice, there is no payment for your sins and mine. Because at the heart of our sinfulness against God is murder. We murder the image of God and we have hatred in our hearts for God and for, relatively speaking, everyone else as we live only for ourselves. Remember the Noahic covenant? If by man's hand blood is shed, by man shall that one's blood be shed. Lex talionis, as it has it in Latin. The eye for an eye principle. Foundation of just law that God himself laid down with Noah. His blood had to be shed. And so the God-man stepped up and fulfilled all that was necessary. That's why the redemption that he buys actually sticks. And why once we are redeemed, we remain that way. For when the Lord marries you, there's no divorce. Praise God. And this sacrifice was once for all. You may have noticed as I read there in uh, the Confession of Faith just uh, a moment ago, the, the, through the eternal spirit, he was once offered up. That word is not an accident there. It's an argument against the doctrine of the Mass, which repeatedly uh, sacrifices Christ week after week after week and on special occasions too. Because in their perversion of biblical Christianity, they think that uh, every time we sin, uh, Christ has to be sacrificed again. The writer of Hebrews makes it so clear that Nothing could be further from the truth. His sacrifice is a once-for-all sacrifice. In verse 25, it, Christ did not come, did not appear on our behalf to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. And the high priest was standing as a representative but didn't give his own life. For then, it says, that Christ would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. That, that redemptive work's been done. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, to deliver them uh, and bring them to himself. This once-for-all sacrifice. Verse 26 where it says that he has come to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This, this verb is in the present tense. And if any of you have studied Greek, um, you know what the present tense indicates. It indicates action that is ongoing, continuous action. In other words, he, he has come, He's done the sacrifice once for all. But he continually is putting away sin. This is speaking to his intercessory office. Because we keep sinning. And as we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For his children, it never gets to the point where Christ says, you hit your quota, sorry, you're done now. And you should be leaping for joy in your hearts at the fact of that statement. He continually puts away sin. And yet, verse 28 says, Christ having been offered once. That's a bit of an unfortunate translation. Because the Greek tense is a, you guys ready for your Greek grammar lesson? It's a pluperfect. I won't ask anybody to tell me what the pluperfect indicates, because I'm just going to tell you. What a pluperfect means is that there was a single action in the past that has ongoing results. And in this particular form here, it's, there's a reflexive element to it. It would be better translated that Christ offered himself. In other words, he wasn't, he wasn't a victim, ultimately speaking. I mean, you could look at it from the human standpoint and so on, and the unjustness of his trial and the lies and and the, the cruelty and all those things. And yes, those things were put upon him. But we also know that, as Jesus himself said, if he'd wanted to be delivered, he could have easily done that. He offered himself, and he did it once. There is no further sacrifice for sin. Christ, as God, fully God, needs no improvement made upon his work. He doesn't have to try multiple times to get it right or to somehow respond to our ongoing faithlessness. His once-for-all sacrifice is enough. No other offering is necessary or even acceptable. Only that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you'll notice in the notes that I gave to you, uh, there's an excerpt there from the Athanasian Creed. It's 
I mentioned the creed uh, last, last time, and uh, the reason we don't read it on our regular schedule is simply because it's really long. Uh, it's about three or four times more than what this little excerpt is here. But this is the portion that particularly applies to what we're talking about this morning. So um, follow along with me as I read this. And I trust that this is the faith of every individual here. Athanasius wrote, The right faith, therefore, is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. Remember, Athanasius is writing in response to the heretic Arius, who denied this relationship. He is God of the substance of the Father begotten before the worlds. We've read that in the scriptures already today, haven't we? And he is a man of the substance of his mother born in the world. And we've read that also. Perfect God, perfect man, subsisting of a reasoning soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as touching his godhood, inferior to the Father as touching his manhood. Philippians 2 who although he be God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. Of course, Christ, Christos, means the anointed one, the Greek version of Messiah. One, however, not by conversion of the Godhead in the flesh, but by taking of the manhood in God. One altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person or might say being, if you prefer. For as the reasoning soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ. That is Orthodox Christianity. Anything else is not. It is an imitation. But it is a mystery. The mystery of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is one that is totally beyond our understanding. All we can do is describe what is true from the scriptures and then humbly bow to the majesty of our Savior and God. My prayer for you is that you know and love this Jesus who to know aright, the scriptures tell us, is, he, is eternal life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. For our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the eternal Son of God and Son of Man. We thank you that he is not confused. We thank you that he perfectly fulfilled all things necessary for our redemption. Lord, humble us before you. Help us, Lord, to cry out for mercy to you and rejoice in the salvation that is ours through the once for all sacrifice in Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his blessed name. Amen.